What are you holding on to? Jesus is going to talk to us specifically about riches today. Money, stuff, possessions. But really this is about everything and anything that we cling on to and we clutch. So what are you clutching on to today that keeps you from taking your next step with God? Is it your wealth? Or your lack of wealth? Is it your identity? Is it the control that you have over your life? What is it that you're holding on to? In some ways, this is the most important thing we're going to do today. So just take a second and ask, what is it that's keeping you from taking your next step? Father, we come to you this morning with open, open hearts, open hands. Father, for just a, the next few moments, we don't clutch or claw or cling to anything. But God, we come to, before you and we ask you as our Father, our good parent, the creator of all things, the creator of all souls and all spirits, all bodies and all minds and all hearts. God, I ask you as our good parent to make us your children. That if there's anyone here that's just struggling with who they are, struggling with what they're clinging on to, struggling with what they're clutching, what prevents them from taking their next step with you, would you reach through that in Jesus' name? Would you, by your spirit, communicate love and grace to us? Father, we thank you. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're going to start in kind of an interesting place, and we're going to see that Jesus is going to turn this conversation. But we're teaching this like verse by verse. So we're going to see how the flow of what Jesus is teaching kind of moves dynamically. But this first part of the text will actually matter a lot as we kind of get into it here this morning. I am trying to click us ahead. Can you click me ahead there? Are you on? It might not be on. There we go. Now I'm on. All right. So verse 13, it says this. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. If you've been with us for a while, you are probably sick of the disciples at this point. Can I get a witness? Everyone's probably like, oh, not again. Yes, again, and again, and again, and again, right? The disciples completely misunderstand Jesus over and over and over again. I know that doesn't happen anymore. Right? We totally get what Jesus is saying, right? We're all perfect and we understand. We don't, right? So they are, their story is our story. And if we put ourselves in the story, we see ourselves in them. Parents are bringing kids to Jesus. And the disciples think that Jesus has much bigger fish to fry. That Jesus has more important people that he needs to talk to. That he has more important things to do. Then to greet little children who have no power, who are, not, who are to be seen and not heard, and in the ancient world, not even really seen. Not seen, not heard, not anything. They're supposed to listen and obey and just be silent and just be in the background. 
But here the children come into the foreground. Just like in the past, the untouchables came into the foreground. Just like in the past, the people who were demon-possessed came into the foreground. The people that were isolated and ostracized came into the foreground. And here the parents bring their kids to Jesus to have him touch them and pray for them and love them, that they would be seen. You know, it says in other translations that the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. Now the kids, the little ones, they don't bring themselves, they are brought to be touched and prayed for. The great need of all God's children, are we, do we bring ourselves or are we brought, friends? If we will come to God, we will be brought like the little kids are brought, like the disciples misunderstand time and time again. We don't bring, we are brought to. The disciples think offering the good news to children is a waste of time that they won't be able to respond or understand that Jesus has bigger things to do. But we know Jesus better than that by now. Jesus said, let the little children, let the ones who are ignored, the ones who are just seen as, just, just be invisible, listen, obey. Maybe someday you'll become a real person. He says, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. You think the kingdom of heaven is for you? You think the kingdom of heaven is for the people who have it together, who are connected, the people who know what it's all about? And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is not for those people. Not for the have it together. It's not for the VIPs. Not for anyone like that. It is for the little ones, the unseen ones. Earlier, Jesus had said, if you can't become like a little kid, you have no business following me. If you can't be brought to God, thinking that you bring something to him. If you can't be brought before him, you can't understand. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. He left. The kingdom belongs to the dependent. The opposite of the consequential, the big, the independent, the entitled. And it's no mistake that that text comes right before this one. Let's look at it together. One of my favorite interactions in Jesus' life and in the Gospels. It says this, just then a man, in other stories in the Gospels, it says a rich young ruler, a wealthy, entitled young person. And by young, we're talking about adult, not like a teenager, but like an adult, came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to, and this is important, get eternal life, to get eternal life. In the original, this text begins with, look, look, a rich young person is coming before Jesus. Look, watch. And he says, teacher, Jesus is so much more than a teacher. And every time someone comes to Jesus saying teacher is kind of a mark of like flattery. You know, they come to him like, teacher, will you teach me something? What happens, amazing things happen when people come to Jesus saying, Lord, Son of David, like son of God, like, like someone who I don't, the hero. The, I need the hero. This person doesn't need a hero. This person's doing just fine on their own. And this person just wants to be taught, wants to get eternal life, wants to get something. He says this, what good deed, as if good deeds will get you anywhere, as if there were just one thing you could do to convince God to let you in. Notice that what he wants is to have something more. 
This is a man who will see has it all, and he wants more. The word for here suggests there is some great act that this man could do to get eternal life. And eternal life, you think of heaven and the afterlife. That's what we think of, right? For the people in the ancient world, yes, they thought that. But they thought, when they thought of eternal life, they thought of the life. Like the best life that started right here and went on and on. How does Jesus respond to him? Respond to this very important person. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. In Mark, Jesus looks at the man and loves him. Jesus says, you don't need him to tell you what is good, which is surprising to us, maybe at first glance. Jesus is saying what is good isn't really obscure. It's not a mystery what is good. It is not really hidden. There is one who is good and who has said what is good. He has articulated life and health and wholeness. There is only one who is good. And any good thing we might do as derivative flows from that one good. Even Jesus himself, as the Son of God, says that he comes from God. Jesus gives a no-brainer. You're looking for a secret like we're all looking for a secret. Aren't you looking for a secret? Aren't you looking for that one thing, that one little hack that could make it all right? That one thing that if I could just get my diet right, man, it would be, it would be on. If I could just find that right workout, if I could just be with that one right person, if I could just get them to, then I could, you know, do you do this? What's the secret? What's the secret? You know, if you come up with a secret, you can sell diets and supplements. You can sell anything. If you come up with the answer to this, you can sell books. You can sell anything. What does Jesus say when a man comes to him asking for the secret? He says, you're looking for a secret. Here's one. There is none. There is no secret. There's none. He says, keep the commandments. He says, do the right things for a healthy life. You know, I've always looked at this as Jesus setting an impossible bar, and it is. If you've been in our small group, you know that here's a test question. Can anyone keep the commandments? No. The spoiler alert is that no, you can't. But Jesus says it is crucial to try <laughs> to, to go on the path that leads to failure, that leads to the point where you're not a very important person looking for a secret. Where you're not an entitled religious person or irreligious person. Paul will say later that the law, the commandments reveal exactly how much trouble we're in and exactly how much we need help. Why does Jesus tell this guy the secret is to keep the commandments? It's because this guy thinks that he doesn't have any problems. He thinks that he's fine, that there's just one, there's just one, little, uh, just one little trick and things would be okay. Notice what this man says when Jesus says, keep the commandments. Which ones? You require Which ones? I mean, can you get the sense of this guy? Do you know this guy? I know this. I am this guy. Forget about knowing this guy. I am this guy. You want to keep the commandments if you want to help you. Which ones? Narrow it down for me, Jesus. 
Tell me exactly what I need to do to put the key into the lock, to turn the lock, to unlock the life that I need. You want me to jump through a hoop, I'll do it. You want me to jump through three and do a flip and turn, I'll try it. Which ones? Which, how many laws are there? You see, we've got the 10 words, right? The 10 commandments. Then we have the 600 addendums in the Old Testament. Then we have the thousands of clarifications done by well-meaning Bible teachers like myself through thousands of years. Which ones, Jesus? Which ones? Notice that when Jesus responds to a religious entitled person, his answer to which ones is this beautiful mashup of the law. It's, 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 it's the law according to what Jesus thinks is the perfect thing for this person to hear. Remember, he has 600 he could choose from. He doesn't just choose the 10 either. Look at what he says. You shall not murder. Duh. Check. Got it. I have hated you in my heart. I haven't struck you down, right? I'm good. I am good. Do not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Okay? You shall not give false testimony or lie. Maybe that's just in a court of law. We're good, maybe. Honor your father and mother. And then, just for kicks, love your neighbor, not for kicks. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know the golden rule, do unto others as you have to you? It's not found in the Ten Commandments. It's found in like a backdoor Leviticus 19 along with some weird, weird, weird stuff. Okay? But Jesus pulls this out of the law and he puts it up here. That's Jesus' whole teaching, right? That's what he's famous for. It's not even in the Ten Commandments. Jesus made Leviticus famous, right? He takes this one up and he says, have you done the big ones? Yeah, you've done the big ones, maybe. It gets tougher. Maybe. Maybe not. Depends on who you are, right? And then it gets real tough. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you're like on your, the edge of your seat, I hope you are. Oh, I hope you are. Because you've got this guy who's, who's this very important powerful, entitled person. He's asked which ones. Jesus has given him this beautiful mix-up. Some of the ten words, but not even all of them, but then one from Leviticus. Who of us, like, if we are in this man's shoes, we would hope that when we hear this, we what? Fall on our faces, maybe, right? Are just humbled? Are just ready to just fall over, just in a puddle of our own self-righteous, grossness what does he do this will make you feel better all these I have kept the young man said what do I still lack man it cuts like a knife doesn't it if you let it like the bold hypocrisy of it the arrogance I mean is he telling the truth friends no of course not right Trevor yeah He's not telling the truth. All these I have kept? No, of course you have it. Of course you have it. What still do I lack? What must I do? What is the secret key that might unlock human existence? He gives us this vision that not only is he a very important person, he is like a VPP. He's a very perfect person. He's done it all, all right. 
What do I still lack? And then Jesus just flips the table on this guy. Just flips it over. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be, this word for perfect, we think of it as like the static perfection. But it's this word in the Greek that means whole or complete. So don't be, like, don't, don't just think when you read this, if you want to be perfect, well, I don't want to be perfect, so I'll settle for less than. He says, if you want to be whole, if you want to be healthy, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. I want you to notice a few things here. One, Jesus doesn't argue with this guy. He doesn't argue with him. I need to hear this so bad. What could you say to this guy to get his attention? But this. Nothing. Nothing. He thinks he's perfect. Like, there's no way to get beyond the perfection, the perceived perfection that this person has. There's no theological argument. Jesus couldn't pull out some dusty version of Leviticus and dust it off and say, well, did you do this? Oh, no. Oh, I'm sorry. I need to come, you know, repent and follow Jesus. There's nothing he could have said but this. Now, if you thought of perfection and this man said, I've kept all the commandments, if I had loved my neighbor as myself, could I be inordinately wealthy? That's a great idea. We're going to answer that question here in a second. Could I be beyond all of that if I had loved my neighbor as myself? Jesus is going to answer it. Because as I read this text and I see that Jesus is saying, he kind of does like an about, he kind of does this off, he puts an off balance by saying, go sell your stuff. Because in the law, I guess it doesn't technically say go sell your stuff, right? But I would think that this wouldn't be a problem for someone who's perfect, right? It says, then come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad. Went away sad. I, I thought he was stoked to find the secret. I thought he was, per- I thought he was on track, right? Just ask him. He was on track. He had it nailed down. Jesus, just give me the one thing. Give me the seat. Give me the one thing. Jesus is like, here's one thing. Nope. Not that thing. This thing is kind of a basic thing too, right? You think someone that was perfect, someone that was super spiritually advanced could get behind the idea of like giving up their stuff and following Jesus. After all, it's Jesus, right? But when he hears the secret... That's an air quotes, podcasters. When he hears the secret, he says, he's sad. He actually doesn't say anything. The guy who had an answer for everything doesn't have an answer for this. Doesn't have an answer for give up your stuff. Give it up. And come and follow me. Why is he sad? The scriptures tell us. Like, Matthew could have just left it there. He went away sad, and it would have been dramatic. But Matthew wants you to know why he went away sad. He goes away sad. Why? Because he had great wealth, many possessions. He was clinging. He was attached 
to the life and to the name that he had made for himself. Notice that his attachment prevented his finding life, finding who he really was. He couldn't recognize what is good, and he misses it. At least right now, by the way, friends. I don't know what happens after this. No one does. I want to believe that he went away sad and he thought about it. And then he just comes running after Jesus some, like weeks later. I'm sorry. I realized I, realize I didn't have it and you've got it and I need it. That might have happened. By the way, you may hear this story and you're like, well, this is just some weird, crazy, dramatic example. This never happens anywhere else. It actually does. And it actually happens in other stories where tax collectors just give up their stuff and they come and follow Jesus. Where people redefine their whole relationship with their things. And if that wasn't tough enough, it might get tougher here. It says this, then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, this is one of those in the original language, it says, amen, amen, I'm telling you. Like, this is real talk, is the way Jesus says this. Truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier, and this is one of Jesus' most famous lines, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Not impossible, Really, really, really hard. Camel through the eye of a needle, hard. Now I gotta take a brief, just hang with me on this tangent for just one second, okay? Because this text has been messed with since medieval times, literally, okay? This text has been messed with. You might notice that sometimes we'll do this thing in the text where we try to give you some background on like what was going on in the culture at the time to try to help you understand, maybe in a different way, but a similar way and a deep way, what Jesus is saying. We did this, let me give you an example. We did this when Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, right, you can say to this mountain, be moved from this place into the ocean and it will be done. And I told you this story about how Herod made a mountain in the middle of the desert and how he might have been looking at this mountain when he said this. Now, I want you to notice, when I give you that background, it alter, it deepens your understanding maybe, right? It colors it. But please notice that when I do that, and when I give you a background thing, it doesn't change the meaning totally of that text. Do you see that? I hope you can see that. It doesn't, it doesn't say it means the opposite of what it meant as you read it for the first time in English, right? But it broadens it. This text is super interesting. Because in the medieval times, they came up with a fictional account where a camel was a camel, and the eye of a needle was this mythical gate into the city of Jerusalem. And so a commentator came up with this story to say that Jesus is saying it's hard, but it's actually like not that hard. Like a camel going through the eye of a needle is like a camel, a rich person going through like a side gate in a city. So the meaning of it for commentators became like, you can be mad rich, like be as rich as you can be, but kind of like be humble about it. And that's cool, you know? Do you notice how that's different? <coughs> Maybe a different kind of meaning 
than what Jesus was saying. The best rendering of this is exactly what we have in our English. That it is as hard as it is for a camel, a real talk live camel, to go through the eye of a real talk needle. That's how hard it is for Jesus when he says this. Thank you for like indulging me on that tangent. But I want most people translate Jesus exactly as brilliantly as he appears here in the English. That is how hard it is. Wealth and prosperity are not goals for followers of Jesus. Do you hear me? Wealth and prosperity are not goals for followers of Jesus, friends. Maybe there's some Bible nerds in the house who are like, well, like, what about Proverbs, man? You have the fear of the Lord and you get like wealth and riches. That's in the Bible, yo. Sorry, maybe you don't speak like that, but that's how I think of you saying that. I'm sorry. But like, Jesus is speaking. Listen up. What kind of wealth? What kind of prosperity? Jesus is going to tell us here. He's not going to leave it up to you to wonder in just a minute. Jesus is saying there has to be a profound transformation for the wealthy. That they don't come into the kingdom without great pain or a great miracle on the part of God. And then the disciples asked this question. When the disciple heard this, they were greatly astonished and they asked, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? Who has a chance to be saved if you're saying that it's this hard, this difficult, this almost seemingly impossible? Who then can be saved? Are they saying this just about wealth? Some of them were indeed wealthy. Peter is one of them. He had a fishing business. He had a house. He had stuff. He had lots of stuff. Maybe they are saying it about the whole of Jesus' teaching, some have thought. Is there hope for anyone? Riches were seen biblically, friends, and maybe you see this. Because we see this at a deep level. If you have riches, it's a reward for fearing God for doing the right things. If you do good, good things happen to you, right? That's not, not according to Jesus. Not according to Jesus. It is welded, though, to the deepest part of our psyches, if we're honest. How deep? It's so deep that the disciples who have been with him say, how in the world does anyone have a shot? This is how deep the addiction to more and to material is, that after following Jesus... The disciples still see this as an impossibility. And Jesus addresses this. Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible. If you're trying to do this on your own, it's impossible. If you have a lot of stuff and, you, and you're reading this and hearing this and you want to try to figure it, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. I mean, in its darkest moments with God, all things are possible has been used as some twisted justification for prosperity preaching. Have you heard this? Like, at its worst, people have taken this text out and said, with God, all things are possible. Thus, where's my money? Where's my stuff? Do you see if, like, the exact opposite is what Jesus is saying? Like, with, with God, it's possible to pry from your fingers your stuff and to use it for God's kingdom. With God, it is possible for you to stop clutching 
at more stuff to prove something to someone. With God, all things are possible. All things. This verse does not say that with God, your quest for more wealth will be totally healthy. That with God, your greed can be justified, can be harnessed to do enough good in the world for you to be able to sleep at night. We depend on God for liberation alone. He is our only hope, and that hope is much, much more than enough. But our restoration, this is, I read this this week about this text, our restoration is outside of our competence. It's outside of our abilities. We learn this, our friends in the 12 steps learn this. We learn that our life became unmanageable. Hear the wisdom. We heard that our wealth became unmanageable. We heard that our stuff became unmanageable. We heard that our religion and our striving became unmanageable. And then our brother Peter, friends, Peter, just like right when we need him, right? Right when you're just waiting for Peter to say something, he will oblige you and he will say something. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Another translation says, what will we get? Ah, oh, Peter, come on. Come on, Peter. I mean, if you're reading this, if you're following along with us, you're just by this point, just like, man, Come on. What will we get? What will we get? You know, I've always taken Jesus' reply seriously, and it is serious. But I, want, I do want to offer, I do want to offer just for a moment that Jesus might be saying the next bit with a twinkle in his eye. Just maybe. Just to come with me. You know, we ask, how do you read it when we look at the text? This is how I read it, as Jesus with a twinkle in his eye. Serious, but also a twinkle. Serious and a twinkle, okay? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, literally what he says is at the genesis again of all things. Not now, (laughs) not now, maybe not soon. Sometime, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, what is Jesus about to do? Be crucified. And how do they feel about that? Not good. Not, so this, this message of victory, this comes on the heels of message of defeat. And so in some ways, I see Jesus needling Peter. Like you think that the Messiah is the hero and is going to win. But I just told you I'm going to lose. But I am going to win. What do you think? When he sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What? What? You've promised, promised us, though, that like we're going to suffer and stuff. Yeah, you are. You definitely are. You've promised us that we're going to lose. You are going to lose. But, but your losing will not be losing. You, you're not losing. You don't lose when you... Open your hands. You don't lose. Does Jesus lose? No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And I take it up again. Jesus, the loss is not a loss. 
Because Jesus is saying that at the renewal of all things, literally the whole cosmic order. I want to talk about physics on this, by the way. Because the word for this is all of the, how thing, the structures and the components of reality is what Jesus is saying. Let your mind wander with that, please. Get back to me. Notice that these are exciting responsibilities waiting for the followers of Jesus. And one more thing before I move on from this. You've got to indulge me on this. He's, who, did, who is he speaking to? You will sit on 12 thrones. Who's in his hearing right now? The disciples. Which one? Judas. Judas is listening to this. It's a little test for all of us who believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. A little test for those of us who think that Jesus is telling, how do you read that? The 12 of you will sit on 12 thrones and will judge the 12 tribes of Israel? I mean, who, come on, folks. Like, and before you want to try to spin out, okay, like, like they'll replace Judas. So he's talking about his replacement in the future. Is he? I don't know. I don't know. Just going to put that out there. That for Jesus, when he's talking about loss and about what the disciples are going to go through, Jesus, he's talking to people that are going to be executed. That are going to all, except for one, who will die in exile on an island. They're all going to lose their lives. That's who Jesus is talking to. So when I say twinkle in his eye, I mean a really like dark twinkle. Like a really dark twinkle. He says more. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. What does he mean? <laughs> everyone who's left the old ways, everyone who's given up their attachments to family or property or wealth, for Jesus is here is all the ways people identified and defended and proved themselves. Jesus is saying, when you give up your attachments, you will gain more than you ever dreamed of. Do you think he means a hundred times as many literal houses? Do you think that he means when you give up a house, you're going to get a hundred houses? I don't think so. I'd like to know what you think. <laughs> That's not how I read it. The way I read it is this, is that you're not losing anything you won't get better of. When you give up your attachment to people, your attachment to wealth, you find something new, something better, something more. No. All right. But he said, this is his last word. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. This is his last word on the matter. Many who are first will be last. Many who are last will be first. Another translation reads this way. But many who are the greatest now will be the least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Who's he talking about? 
We don't know. We don't know. Don't try too hard to figure it out either. Because that's part of the problem is trying to figure it out. Part of the problem is they will come to him and they'll say, who's the greatest, Jesus? Like, who's the greatest, you know? Jesus is saying that not everything that looks the way it looks now is the same as what it's going to be always. That there's going to be a lot of surprises in store for us who are following Jesus. That some who seem to have figured things out to have it all together do not. Many who look like they are a mess are right on track. Right on track. This is a comfort and a warning, my friends. It is open-ended, as this Sunday morning conversation is, as our lives are. So what's your relationship to your things? And by things, I mean everything. Your people, your stuff, your money, your lack of money, your opportunities, your job, your, your success, your lack of all of it. What's your relationship? How are your hands? Are they open? Are they clinging? Why don't you bow your heads and pray? This is for you, for your time with God. Take a moment. Try to make it personal for yourself this morning. Is there anything that you're clinging on to that identifies you? Anything you're clutching? It could be almost anything. It could be a substance. It could be a habit. It could be a person. Friends, it could be your money, your wealth, your talent, your stuff. Just in the quietness of your heart, what does it look like for you to open your hands? Maybe it helps you to do that. Just put your hands on your lap and just open them. Open hands. Does it feel scary? It's the best kind of scary, my friends. What does it look like for you to open your hands and to let your things go? Have you been thinking that you would lose? Jesus says there's nothing to lose. Nothing. Let's take a moment. What does it look like for you to open your hands? Father, would you prevent us from weaponizing this text against someone else, against even the man in the story, against Peter, 
God, give us the ability as your kids to be self-aware to know how this text applies to us. To know the places in our life where we are clutching, white-knuckled to something, to someone, to some opportunity, to some wealth, to some bank account, to some job, to some, to something. God, that we think if we let our hands open that we're gonna lose everything. Father, that if we, if we lost that connection to that thing, that we would lose who we are. And we couldn't be more wrong. And your son Jesus couldn't be more right. That if we just let our hands open, that there's more adventure, that there's more meaning and purpose, more good, more hope, more connection waiting for us than we could ever even ask or imagine. That is a big thing for us to believe, Father. So I pray that by your spirit, by your word, that they would crack open hard hearts and twisted minds. That we might hear your word and become your kids and follow your son, Jesus, our brother, our savior, our friend, as he builds his kingdom in our hearts and in our neighborhood and in our home and in our workplace, in our lives. Father, send us out as your kids to let go of our stuff, see it redeemed and restored and do something in your kingdom. God, it's in Jesus' good name that we pray, amen. Thank you so much for being here with us today. If you're giving an offering as part of your time with God, there is a box in the back. Have a great week, and we'll catch you next time. Much love.